Our guest today is a UK-based author, lecturer and non-fiction storyteller who makes short work of tackling giant narratives. A former technology editor and science correspondent at the Sunday Times newspaper in London, Christopher Lloyd's best-selling children's book, Help Our Little Ones Understand Big Topics in an Incredibly Engaging Way. We're so pleased to have him join us now on The Great Equalizer to, to chat about his latest work, It's Up to Us, a children's terracotta for nature, people, and the planet. Welcome, Christopher. Thank you. Lovely to be here. <laughs> it's so great to be sitting in person, finally. Talking to people. <laughs> I know, to isn't it real exciting? people really in real lovely. life. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. <laughs> well, we're so pleased that you're our first in-person guest in so long. Um, I, I do have an admission to make, and perhaps you can help me out here. I'll admit that... I needed to Google terracotta before the interview. Guilty. Guilty. <laughs> no, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I knew, okay, terra, I knew it had some, I did Latin at Varsity. Yes, yes. I knew it had something to do with the earth, yep. but I had no idea that it was part of the Prince of Wales Sustainable Markets Initiatives. First, to, to, to get us off the ground here, can you tell us more about that? Of course I can. And the, the, don't feel bad about not hearing about terracotta because it's a kind of made-up new concept. Oh, really. right. And it was really the product of Prince Charles, um, who will probably be the King of England at some point. Um, and he has been a, an ambassador or even a crusader, really, for trying to put nature first in people's lives for about 50 years. And in, often he's been ridiculed in the press for sort of talking to his flowers and all that kind of stuff. But he has an empathy with nature that has really um, stood the test of time. And obviously now, with the whole challenge of climate change, and given that everybody pretty much on the planet realises that we have a problem, mm. we need to reevaluate our relationship with nature. And the things that he's been saying for decades... You know, really makes sense. And so during lockdown, he came up with this idea called the Terracotta. And I read about it in the newspaper um, back in the UK just, well, not that long ago, really, in about January 2021. And the idea he was saying is that we need a new set of rules. We need to, a new agreement, not with each other, not like Magna Carta, which if you may recall or may not was 805 years ago mm -hmm. we in england we were being ruled by a tyrant a despot a, a dictator mm -hmm. called king john and he believed all his power came from god and he could do anything he liked and eventually people you know decided that he needed to obey the law but there wasn't a law so they they made 63 rules and they called it magna carta and in that tradition of making a set of rules uh, Prince Charles said, well, we need a new set of rules, but this time about our relationship with the planet, mm -hmm. with nature. So let's call it terracotta. So that was the idea. And he was aiming the whole, um, th this, this whole plan, this whole strategy, this whole mission at businesses and business leaders. And when I read about it, I thought to myself, well, how many business leaders are really going to put planet before profit? How many business leaders are going to really change their own lifestyles and, and, and adopt a new way of living? It's quite difficult when you get, you know, 30, 40, 50, you get set in your ways. And I thought maybe there would be a big opportunity to turn this idea into a children's book. And what we can try and do is we can tell the story in a way that really will allow children to ask questions of the adults in their lives, whether they're parents or uncles and aunts or grandparents, and say, you know, how come we're not putting nature first? And if we can put these ideas in a language that allows 
us to open that conversation, maybe we can have a bigger impact over the long term than any number of treaties or sets of rules for business people. Let's do it as a children's book. So that's why we've got this, it's up to us, a children's terracotta. Well, I love how that the children are being offered a seat at the you know Sustainable Markets Initiative at you know Terracotta. So it's your take on teaching our gen- our generation of children about climate change and sort of engaging them on the active the activism of it all. You know, um, you know, tell us more about the book specifically and how it's well the, it the translated bo- that the, the book has been a real surprise and a, a hugely exhilarating journey for me personally we had very little time to do the book usually if you're going to make a 64 page fully illustrated children's book it might take 12 to 18 months at least by the time you've come up with the the concept all the way through to actually getting it printed in the shops um but we felt it was important to try and get this book published in time for COP26, if anybody remembers COP26. Does anybody remember that? <laughs> in addition to everything, <laughs> everything else, else going on Anyway, I mean. for, to remind everybody, it was in Glasgow last year and all the world leaders came together to try and you know, commit to how they were going to reduce carbon emissions to help address climate change. And uh, we only, uh, by the time I got in touch with Prince Charles's team and see if there was an interest in, in a partnership. Um, fortunately, they agreed and thought it was a great idea, but we all agreed we wanted to get the book uh, ready in time for COP26. Mm. So that we started work in April last year and it had to go to the printers in August in order to be able to get into the shops and everything in time. For distribution tasks. Wow. So, so such a small wow. space of time. So mm. I wrote the words, that's that's fine, that's easy in that sense. But then who was going to illustrate, um, you know, 33 beautiful spreads in kind of three weeks. And every time we approached an illustrator, they said, well, we'll love the project, love to do it. They said, no way. (laughs) So actually we have found ourselves applying one of the principles of the Terracotta, which is that we need to work as teams. We can't address climate change unless we work as as teamwork across different cultures, across different disciplines, across different generations. And so rather than getting one illustrator to do 33 wonderful spreads, we got 33 illustrators to do one each. And and the book was done. And it was so exciting. And so if you go through the book, you will see the story told through the visual lens of 33 different artists from as many different places around the world as we could possibly uh, engage with, from China and Japan to Africa to Aboriginal Australia and Canada Mm. and Iceland and Siberia. And and actually, in a way, that's been the real making of the book, been to see how all those different perspectives can be brought together to tell this singularly important story. Well, I wish I could show our listeners just the the diversity in these pages from the 33 different illustrators. It's truly beautiful. And I think just the nature of how that came to be is such a beautiful story. (laughs) In itself, yes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Charlene, I want to show you something. So I took notes. Yes. I saw. Christopher, did you see? I saw the, that. The, the carbon footprint um, of the book, you've added it. We have. To the, to the back cover. Tell us more about what the carbon footprint of the book is. Well, the carbon footprint of the book is 280 grams of carbon dioxide is emitted in the process of making the book. Now, one of the spreads in there is actually illustrated by a Kenyan artist, and it's all about... One of the principles of Terracotta, which is by informing people about what they're buying so the consumers can make a really informed choice. Now, if you think about what is on a label when you buy something, it might tell you 
um, the price. It might tell you where it's made. It might tell you how many calories it has, if it's edible, etc., etc. So the label, you know, would traditionally tell you where it's made or how many calories it has, what the price is. But does it tell you how much carbon dioxide was emitted as a result of making that product? Answer, no. Does it tell you how many miles it traveled in order to get to the place where you're buying it? Answer, probably no. So um, we wanted to try and follow that idea of informing consumers by saying, okay, well, we'll, we'll work out how many carbon uh, dioxide emissions there were for this book, 280 grams, uh, but that doesn't really mean anything in itself. Um, you need to compare it with things. So we managed to um, get some researchers to help us work out that it's equivalent to drinking a third of a glass of milk, buying five apples, or, or, five or a fifth of a plastic toothbrush. So that gives you an idea that those things have a similar amount of carbon emissions. Obviously, not obviously, but for all the carbon emissions involved in printing these books, we have uh, planted trees with the World Land Trust, and a, part, a central part of the story of this book is that is to inform children that trees are like straws that suck out the carbon dioxide in the air, and the carbon dioxide is like a blanket. So if that blanket gets too thick, then the world gets too warm. And of course, that has devastating consequences on on for for, for desertification or for or for or for melting the glaciers, etc. If the blanket is too thin, then the world gets too cold. And that's the wonderful thing about nature: is it has inbuilt mechanisms, in this case, trees, to regulate the atmosphere by sucking out the carbon dioxide from the air. So. By planting those trees, then we know that the 280 grams that have gone into the book will be sucked out and returned to the ground eventually, uh, and hopefully our descendants don't dig it all up again and burn it like, like we did. So uh, <laughs> we've got my fingers crossed. Yes, we live in hope. <laughs> we do. Chris, you've made me think of a funny anecdote. So my five-year-old was driving in the car with me, and we live in Johannesburg, yes. obviously, the you know biggest man-made forest um, yeah. in, in the world, hey? I think so. Right. It is. Yeah. Uh, you would know you're an Assyrian. <laughs> I don't know everything. <laughs> um, well, we, there's a lot of trees in Joburg. I could see that. And we um, were driving up to my son's school, uh -huh. and one of the trees after one of our big storms here in the High Felt yeah. had fallen mm -hmm. across the road. Right. And it was being um, kind of managed by mm -hmm. emergency services. And my son, who typically suffers from nausea, um, from the car, so oh, motion sickness, yeah, 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 he thought a little bit about that. And he said, Mommy, and every time we drive past that particular place on the road, he repeats mm -hmm. the story. And he says, Mom, um, actually he calls me Sam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he said, Sam, um, you know, remember that tree that fell down? That's why I get nauseous at this part because there's less oxy oxygen is that right? in the world. That's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Every single time. That is incredible. So it's made that connection, connection in, his, in mind. his mind. So he's convinced. That's amazing. Not only is it taking out the carbon dioxide, but it's also delivering the oxygen. So yes. trees are just so magic. <laughs> and they're so important, the really important part of the story. Mm. So, well, I mean, that's, that's what you accomplish through It's Up To Us. I do want to talk a little bit about your other work that, that leads up to that. And we're going to circle back. We're going to circle back to it's up to us. Great. But I wanted, I was super interested to read um, about your homeschooling endeavors with your daughters. So you started writing books only once you and your wife embarked on um, a homeschooling approach. That's incredibly brave. Yeah, incredibly <laughs> well, brave. There's a lot to take on considering you're homeschooling. <laughs> well, we, we didn't homeschool by... Uh, on purpose, actually. 
what happened was that our eldest daughter, Matilda, when she was eight, she was very precocious and she loved reading and she, she was always asking questions and she, she was a joy to be with. And she moved from one school year group to the next. And in her next year group, her whole kind of personality began to change, even within three or four weeks. And she didn't want to read and she didn't want to go to school and she didn't want to get dressed in the morning and she was quite angry and she was moody. I mean, you might expect that when she's 15, but she's only eight. Yes. Uh, So you think, well, what's the trouble? So we went to see the teacher. Which, and this must be a nightmare for any teachers, you know, some concerned parent coming saying, well, my, my, my child's not happy, what's going on? And the teacher was um, tasked, of course, like teachers are, who have the most amazingly difficult jobs in the world sometimes. I have infinite respect for teachers, of course. But she is charged with getting as many children through the math and the um, literacy tests as possible. And so she looks down at her test scores and she sees Matilda's actually doing fine at maths and uh, reading and writing. So, so there's no problem. Nothing to worry about. And, uh, but we know there's a problem because she doesn't want to come to school, and that's a problem. She's getting cross with us because we're forcing, forcing her to go to, to school. Right. Uh, what had happened was the teacher had divided the class up into two groups, those that needed her help to get through the tests and those that didn't. And those that didn't need her help were being given mind-numbingly boring worksheets to do just to keep them quiet. Because they're right? okay. They've they're just okay. got to stay busy, right. But they're not okay from an individual level, are they? Because mm. they're bored. Mm. Now, boredom, I've discovered, is a mental disease. I mean, it's a brain disease. You're, can you imagine a baby born bored? I mean, it seems absurd, mm. isn't it? But babies are, brains are designed to receive new information, to process them, and to adapt. And they need that. If they're not getting stimulation, they're going to start to shut down. Mm. And, that's, and, and it eventually it becomes depression. Boredom is early onset depression, I think. Um, and at least depression is acknowledged as being you know, a dreadful kind of uh, illness these days. Boredom, we say, well, don't worry, just pass the test. You know? So we kind of condone boredom, don't we? But we shouldn't do that. Mm. And so it was too upsetting for us to see her and really not wanting to go to school. So we tried to find another school. They all say they were great at getting the kids through the tests. So we thought, well, we'll we'll home educate just for a few weeks while we try to find another school. And I have to say, we thought that in two months you could do what it was going to take you two years to do in a school. I mean, how much fun were we going to have? And we had a schoolroom and we had a curriculum and we had a timetable and we (laughs) we had a clock and we had a bell and it was going to be amazing and i have to say at the end of that two months the lloyd household resembled the end of a play called hamlet if you're familiar with that one it was a catastrophe and so relatable for so many parents post-covid now where we homeschooled our kids i mean literally it was blood on the floor we were at each other's throats and it was in our desperation we sat down with matilda and we asked her a question that in hindsight we should have asked her at the beginning (laughs) and we simply said to her, Matilda, tell us, what are you interested in? And why didn't we say that in the first place, right? We spent all that time telling her, as adults, what we think she needs to know. We never bothered to ask, what are you interested in? And when she told us what she was interested in, everything changed. And I wouldn't be here now if she hadn't, if we hadn't asked that question, because everything I've done since is basically based around the question, what are you interested in? Well, what did she say? Penguins. <laughs> She was interested in penguins. And so we went to London Zoo. We had a great day because they have good penguins at London Zoo. (laughs) And then she wants to find out about where penguins come from. Now, we didn't know then that you had penguins in South Africa, but we do now because the end of the story is that we came to South Africa to see the penguins. Oh, wow. But uh, that was only about three years ago. But um, but, so we we find out in Antarctica, which, by the way, used to be on the equator 250 million years ago, and it's moved like a giant jigsaw puzzle piece all the way around the world. I know. And we learn about volcanoes and 
plate tectonics. And, and then we find out that the penguins, how do they survive when it's so cold? They huddle together. So we have a good hug. That's nice. You can do that at home. You're probably not allowed to do that at school. school. <laughs> uh, and, and then we, we say, well, there's a big group here and a little group there. Now let's count them up. And now, now our penguin leaves this group and goes to that group. Now we can do our arithmetic. We can do ratios. We can do percentages. And then she says to me something that changes everything again. She says, Dad, hey, Dad, why did the penguin leave the big group and go to the little group? And I'm thinking, well, what does it matter? That just We're doing maths. She's yeah. not doing maths. She's doing penguins. <laughs> so she starts writing a story about maybe the penguin was bullied or maybe it fell in love. And why? The, so now she's doing her creative writing about why the penguin left the big group and went to the little group. And then she wants to find out about ice, which is amazing because when you heat it up, it turns to water. And what happens when you heat up water? It disappears. Mm. It's like a magic trick. It's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? And this is changing states of matter key stage two in the curriculum, yeah. But then we do stories about ice. And did you know there was a ship that left Southampton in 1912 and they said it would never sink? So they didn't put enough lifeboats on board. And we discussed something called arrogance, which in the context of a story, it's quite easy for a child to understand. And then you look for arrogance in the world around you today. There's lots of it if you want to. Yes, going exactly. <laughs> and then we talk about irony because, of course, that ship, the Titanic, struck an iceberg. There's the link. And 1,529 people died because there weren't enough lifeboats on board. And then she wants to do poems about penguins, dance like a penguin. And I realised to my absolute amazement that all the... All the skills you might want your young child to be able to develop can be learned through penguins. <laughs> but it isn't, it isn't penguins, it's anything. If you do two things, you have to ask them, what are you interested in? And then you have to find ways of connecting knowledge together so they can learn through their curiosity. Now, if you can do that, they will become lifelong learners and mm. be able to adapt. Whatever happens in the future, they will want to retrain themselves because they are in that mindset that we're born with using their curiosity. If they think to themselves, I can't do that because I don't want to take the exam because I might fail, then we failed them. Yes. And we've created this brittle society rather than this adaptable society, which is the key to survival, really. So that's why I do what I do. Climate change, re it requires all the topics of the curriculum to be brought together to be able to come up with ways that we can try and address that problem. And in fact, all these books you will find are ways of connecting things together. Well, I wanted to show Charlene Humanimal, which I think this is my favourite. Oh, good. I don't want to be biased. No, you no what I mean, are you interested in Humanimal? Well, Great. <laughs> I looked up love because oh. it's, I mean, it's how animals are just like us and looked up love and that's your story they're about the penguins. The pe they're the penguins. There they are. And that word Humanimal, in, in a way... I wanted to find a word that would capture the idea that humans and animals are are so similar mm. and that you know we use language to to, to make things separate from each other. Mm. So rather than think I'm a human and that's an animal, let's all celebrate what we have in common and let's have a word humanimal, like a dog is humanimal, I'm humanimal. You know, so many things we have in common. I'm sure many of your listeners, if they've got pets or they live in this beautiful country surrounded by amazing wildlife and all the rest of it, you'll get an instinctive feeling. And children have this feeling that they are close to nature and that they are attached. And it's only as we get older that we start putting things in silos and, and trying to yes, make divisions like separation and it's, it's a metaphor really for how we should treat each other that we should look for the similarities not the differences same with nature and then we are more part of nature not apart from nature i love that and and to, just to tie our listeners in because i'm very aware that we're all looking at the book but uh, they are not 
Humanimal, um, you know, is so beautifully illustrated by Mark Rifle. Yes, he's wonderful. Um, And just ties in exactly as you were saying, Chris, how animals are similar to us. I mean, in terms of community, feelings, intelligence, uh, with all subheads under that. And living as civilizations. I mean, you know, bees, termites, ants, they were the first civilizations more than 100 million years ago. And you can see so many traits of how we live in our in our urban cultures they're there in the natural world mm, they teach mm. each other they divide labor between each other they they defend each other they've got they they they, they have also you know, like incredible stories of bees they actually vote where they're going to put their nest one year to another using a form of voting uh, like a democratic voting called range voting uh, you can read about it in the book That's amazing. it's amazing to see things we <laughs> think of as human actually have been around. We're expressions of nature ourselves, of course, mm. so it's no surprise. But it's important, I think, for us to try and take a step back and see the connections. That's so great. So all this, Chris, your exploration of a child's mind and what she's interested in prompted you to start working on your first book, which was not for kids. Correct. It was not for kids. Uh, I wanted it to be for kids, but the um, publisher, Bloomsbury, um, decided they wanted it for adults. So Although I'd written the proposal for kids and the first two or three chapters, I then had to rewrite them in a slightly more um, con- contrived way, uh, <laughs> I suppose, uh, but in a more detailed way. Um, but that was okay. And this book was um, it was a crazy idea, really. Uh, of I, want, I became passionate about connecting knowledge together, as you can understand. And one thing I, I discovered, there were all sorts of gaps in my own knowledge that I hadn't been aware of as I was thinking about... Um, thinking more holistically. And I, we, the home education thing became a real hit for us. We ended up home educating for five years. Once we got into it and we started flipping it around and saying, what are you interested in? It became a real blast for all of us because we started to learn stuff from the kids. I'm sure. Uh, and I gave up my job. I was working in Oxford. I live in Kent and it was too far. And I thought, I'll take a year off. And then if I retire when I'm 75, not 65, then this year with the children at this age, with this going on, would be worth at least 10 years when I'm older. So let's do that. So we spent our savings, bought a camper van, and we went around Europe for six months just as a family, like, you know, travellers. Oh, it was the best thing we ever did. It was fantastic. And my job was always to do the washing up, <laughs> which was fine. And I discovered that there's a real joy in washing the dishes. Um, and, and funnily enough, I've never used a dishwasher since then, since 2006. So um, I would go to the campsite washing up station. I don't know if you go camping, but yes, often yes. they're outside the washing up stations. And I would go there and I would look forward to meeting lots of people and asking them, you know, where's, where's the best place to go? You know, where should we avoid? What can we do? You know, I can do my business development around whilst I'm washing up the dishes, especially when you arrive somewhere for the first time and you haven't been there before. And the great thing about camping in Europe is that at every campsite, there's always loads and loads of Dutch people I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that Dutch people are always camping in different campsites all the way around Europe, and they speak good English. This is interesting. Yeah, it's true. And so this was good. So usually the Dutch people would help me, you know, with my research. And we arrived at this campsite in Rome called Camping Tiber, and uh, I went out to do the washing up, and there was no one there, and not even a Dutch person, for love nor money. And I thought, well, this is catastrophic. How am I going to find out <laughs> we what we're going to go do? Next. You know? <laughs> and I remember looking at the tree, and in the tree there was a little brown bird. And I thought to myself, oh, so annoying I can't speak bird. 
because that bird <laughs> would have such a good view of Rome, and we could have had, so, you know. And then I noticed the bird was in a tree, and I thought, you know, I don't. Not only do I not know what sort of bird that is, I don't know what species it is. Or I can tell you it's a brown bird. I don't even know what type of tree that is that the bird is sitting in. And then I looked down at the ground, and I realized to my horror, I didn't know how old the Earth is. Now I live on this planet, and it's very important to me. I didn't know when it was. Born. I didn't know how old it is. How? And if I ask you, Charlene, how old is the Earth? I have no idea. Sam, how no. old is the Earth? You see, this is the other thing. And I, I thought I was moderately well educated. You know, studied history, <laughs> became a journalist, science correspondent. I didn't know how old the Earth was. We always get taught. We like, but that was ten years ago, or when, or like more, when we were kids, Charlene. That yeah. like dinosaurs. But how many were other? Like, Really important, obvious 60, things. What happened don't 63 billion years ago? What? 63 billion years ago? I don't know. Uh, well, the, the, the universe million? is only 13.8 okay, billion 63 years. million? That's Why good. 63 in my head? There's a big difference between a million and a million. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> 63 is in my head. 63 is good. 65 is what you're thinking. Probably, okay. that's when the meteorite struck that killed off okay, the dinosaurs. Okay, Right. Yeah, you need yes, to ask Elijah I'm, about that. Yes, <laughs> I do, indeed. <laughs> yeah, check in with him. Um, but, but funnily enough, talking about millions and billions, and I, I discovered there's this really interesting um, way of asking kids what's the difference between a million and a billion. And it tells you a lot about the way our brains are wired, actually, because an intelligent kid will say, well, it's got, one's got three more on the zeros than another. A really intelligent kid will tell you well, that one begins with an M and then the other begins with a B. <laughs> That's a great answer. But the best way of, uh, of understanding it that I've discovered is that if you put a million seconds next to each other, that's 12 days. Okay, now we all understand what 12 days is because we're used to, in our brains, understanding the passage of time. We're not all very good with numbers because numbers are quite new and quite scary, right? But if you put a billion seconds next to each other, guess how much time passes? Oh, you could work it out, but I'm not no, stressing you to do that. I, I mean, the I answer, can't. No, I can't even. <laughs> 33 years. Oh, wow. So the difference between a million and a billion is the difference between 12 days and 33 wow. years. That's and a so wonderful you, way of explaining you, it. Now we understand what the difference is between a millionaire and a billionaire, <laughs> right? It's a lot. It is a lot. How do we get onto that? Anyway. The we, bird, you don't no, speak bird. bird. Don't speak bird. And I must but just I, tell you, my son, I'm sure my, my son speak feels, bird, yeah. feels he like bird. you most days. He, he'd love to speak bird. He oh, believes in some instances he can speak oh, bird. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> yeah. But I thought, how many other things are missing? I need a book that goes from the beginning of time to the present day to connect the dots. So that was the first book called What on Earth Happened that I wrote for Bloomsbury. And then I wanted to try and find ways of of this interconnected narrative being available for younger people. So I started uh, working on a series of timeline books, mm. which are called wall books, because you can read them like books or you can unfold them. And in a thousand pictures, it'll take you on a journey from the beginning of time to the present day on a timeline. And that's a really nice way of connecting things together because you mm. can see what's happening in different continents at different times. And it really is asking a child, what are you interested in? Some of them will look for the dinosaurs. Some of them will look at, you know, the Second World War. Some of them will look for the Neil Armstrong on the moon. Some of them will look for, you know, uh, Henry VIII with his six wives or whatever it may be. But it doesn't matter what you're interested in or where you start you can begin your own curiosity journey and then tell people about it and ask other people what they've seen. And it's a great way of opening up this whole joy of learning. That's wonderful. So that book, the map uh, book is called... This is the Big History Timeline the Wall, Wall Book. book. The uh, Wall Book. And in fact, there was a series of those. I did one with the Natural History Museum on Nature, one with the Science Museum on Science and Inventors, one with the Shakespeare Trust on all the plays of Shakespeare, 
um, and one on British history with the National Trust, and one on sport, actually, because you can learn the history of the world through sport. If you're interested in sport, that's mm. a great way of learning about human nature mm. and about people and about cultures and all the rest of it over time. I'm curious to know where Matilda is now, what she's doing, and your, and your second daughter? Verity is Verity. the second daughter. Yes, that's very sweet of you to ask. Well, the Matilda story actually is quite relevant to South Africa because this is actually my third trip to South Africa. I came, first of all, as a student in 1988, backpacking around, which was amazing. It was quite different in 1988, I'm sure. Um, and the second time I came was with Matilda. And my wife and I came, and she decided that her penguin was going to be the trumpet. And so she is a professional solo trumpet player, and she plays with different orchestras around the world, and she happened to be playing with the Johannesburg Symphony Orchestra. Wow. So she came over, and we came over to support her uh, and to come to her concerts. And I got in touch with my very wonderful uh, publishers over here, Jonathan Ball, and they uh, set me up to do some talks in schools. Uh, and as a result of that... Um, uh, we had a brilliant time and we went down to Cape Town uh, for two or three days holiday at the end. And guess where we went? To Simon's Town. No. Where? Boulders Bay. Ah, Boulders Bay. Boulders yes. Bay. Oh, of course, with the penguins. Yeah, up. Oh, 100%. Come on. Yes, the penguins. And so we had a bit unfair, wasn't it, to put you on the spot? But yes, we did. We saw thousands and thousands of amazing penguins. And I've got these wonderful pictures. First I time. I love Boulders you know, Bay. I know. It was just. It just do you know, and I, I discovered that one time, I think in the 70s or something, almost all the penguins had gone because of the overfishing of pilchards in Hawke's Bay or whatever it is there. Oh. And, um, but then when they put that ban, they managed to get the, the penguins came back, and now it's a, an absolute it's, riot oh, of penguins. There's a lot it's of fantastic. them. Yeah, when last brilliant. have you been to Boulders Bay? I took Elijah when he was one. Okay. So uh, he, when he was Noah's age. So I need, to, to, I need to go back. I, I need so. to take Elijah back, and I need oh, to take my time. youngest now. No, my no, kids yeah, haven't sure. been. I've got to take them. And you can take the Constantia on the way back to Cape Town, you know, do some wine tasting. Yes. Oh, goodness, yes. I mean, but then the kids, you know, shame. Who looks after the kids looks while mom's had too much wine? <laughs> Dad, be made to be educational. I vote, they I vote for the dads. Yeah. The dads, can, can, will, can, they won't drink <laughs> while we drink. You can do fermentation. It's a very important process. Exactly. You know? Why you know, not? Weave it into your little journey. Yeah. <laughs> what happens if you consume too much alcohol? Well, you get drunk. This is what it looks now, like. You, see, in, you will read it. I'm not sure it's in human animal, but bees get drunk. They have too much nectar. Oh, wow. And, it, and then it ferments and they can get quite intoxicated, yeah, which can cause a lot of trouble in the hive, as you can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. So, you know, we've just... Animal. Those rowdy bees. I know. <laughs> we've just had Mother's Day here in South Africa, and I can't tell you, every single school that I, you know, or, you know, every single of my um, mom's... You know, my mom friends, the the schools that their kids are at, had like questionnaires uh-huh. of you know what's mommy to you, what's mommy's <laughs> best this, what's mommy's best that. Oh what my is, gosh. What Sounds does a bit mom dangerous. say? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking yeah. what my kids would say. What does what does mom say that makes you know that she loves you? Yeah. And a lot of it was, um, what's mommy's favorite drink? And almost every single one was wine. Really? Yeah, well, I mean, wine, moms drink that's wine. What it be. Exactly. I'm I mean, curious to know if my kids would have said coffee or wine. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Anyways, oh we, we do digress, guys. We do digress. But it's lovely to know. Yes, uh, my what younger daughter, you did of- ask. So Matilda is, is, and the younger one actually is very exciting for me because she's working with children suffering from anxiety and she's working in schools 
And um, like I work in schools, and in fact, in many ways, I'm doing a, I feel very close to what she's doing because a lot of my books and what I'm doing is about trying to encourage the well-being of children through a joy of learning and through connecting knowledge together and becoming expert and having confidence to talk about things and, and to enjoy the whole process of discovering about the world. Is, and, and she's working with children with anxiety and, and training now to become a psychologist. So, you know, there's lots of lovely links. I just wanted to say how cool that is because I, my eldest is very um, cognizant yes. of being perfect. I ah, don't know why. He puts this pressure on himself right. and like he wants to have the highest mark and yeah. he wants to have the Has most have knowledge that. and he yeah. wants to get all the answers right, right. always at school. Yes. And I think that brings a lot of anxiety mm, for, I'm nervous about it now because I know that mm. as his road progresses in his education journey, that's going to be difficult yep. for him because you're not always going not to get a hundred percent. And I, I mean, I've seen teenagers that put that pressure on themselves. It's, it's, a, it induces a lot of anxiety. Yep. So I think having a viewpoint of education being a fun discovering journey yeah. that you're just a journey of discovery that you're on rather than yeah. I must know all the answers I must know all and the you, answers and you don't have to get them all right because mm. actually the brain works through choice it has to have a choice and you make a choice and it's trial and error really and if it works you do more of it mm. if it doesn't work you know you not try to do more of it route, yes. but, but if you didn't have the choice and you got it wrong you wouldn't know which way to go exactly. so it, that it, that it's really important for young people not to feel afraid of mm. of guessing or, or getting it wrong yes, yeah. and exactly. if you get it wrong that doesn't matter somebody else now may we be know able to get for next right. time and we yes. all have different strengths and weaknesses so we all get different things right and wrong mm. well speaking of scary chris your books tackle really big issues like we've said huge narratives that's the the name of your game really and especially it's up to us your mission it seems is to engage with our children about these issues and the wonders of the world in a way that they will understand and appreciate. But I do want to play devil's advocate here. What sure. happens when these issues are somewhat scary or leave our children a bit, a bit out of their depth? Yeah, like intimidated by the thought of, wow, that's a big that's thing a to big try issue. and understand. My suggestion and my inclination is always to zoom out to provide context. If you look at things out of context and you isolate them and you zoom in too far, mm. you might get very, very paranoid and scared about one particular aspect. If you zoom out, you tend to see the forest is telling a different story from the individual trees. Mm. And that actually, if we take a big perspective, either we're looking over big periods of time or we're looking at lots and lots of people collaborating together or, or, or we're looking at lots of different parts of the world, you will always find that there are areas of hope. If you, if you zoom in on one particular issue that is troubling you and that's all you can see, then you might become full of despair. So that's why in all my books I try to provide a way of seeing the big context. And it's up to us, we look at nature before there are any people. Mm. Then we see what people have done to nature in the last 200 years particularly. Then we look at the problems it's producing for the planet. And then we're looking at these terracotta ideas of how we might be able to make a difference mm. and how the children can make a difference by talking to the adults in their lives. So by activating them, we are enlisting them in a, in a story of hope, of endeavor. It's not of all communication. Lost. We can make no. a change. And it's not like, you know, you messed it up and there's nothing we can do. Mm. No, we're saying actually we can change this. People have been messing this up for a long time. You, the children of the world, have got the most to gain and the most to lose, and we're going to equip you with the means to have this conversation. Mm. They can provide the pressure to try and make politicians, to make you know business people, whatever it is, whatever the walks of life, think about things differently and put nature first. 
Not to mention they'll grow into those big corporate business uh, directors time, and people eventually. This will be instinctive in the world, and you know there'll be lots of taboos. Today we take things for granted that our children will not will find unacceptable in terms of lifestyles, um, and. I hope very much I'm still alive to witness that myself mm, in, mm. in a few decades to come. Well, you will have had more experience on this than me, but it did crop up for me on that particular topic, mm. on the topic of climate change in particular with regard to our kids. It's been widely reported that um, news on climate change is negatively affecting our children's mental health yep. um, and adults, but the focus of the news was on our children. So on the one hand, we could be creating a generation of Greta Thornburgs, not the worst thing, but on the other, the problem also, as we've said, seems insurmountable. So are we at risk of guilt-tripping our kids for an issue that they have zero control over? Of course we're at risk of doing that, definitely. I, I would um, challenge the idea that we've got zero control because mm. if you think that, then you've got some monopoly of the future and mm. nobody Which has nobody that has sort has of foresight. Mm. So luckily those people can be sort of, you know, ignored in my mind. Um, young people have, uh, I have so much respect and so much confidence in young people's capacity to make change happen. And I think by that's why I want to focus my energy anyway on younger people and try and equip to them to be able to make older people accountable, not in an aggressive, violent way, because I don't think that gets the best out of people, but in a way that asks awkward questions. I mean, do you have solar panels, Charlene, at home? No, I do Why not. not? <laughs> well, they're really expensive. <laughs> okay. but, but I'm sure there are things you spend your money on. You could spend it on solar panels if you wanted to. Mm. Maybe you and your children could raise money in the community to get some kind of sustainable energy solution. I mean, goodness gracious me, are you not fed up with load shedding? Yes. Isn't it time? It we is. did something, you know, and it's about priorities. It's about conversations. It's about thinking of, can we plant trees? Can we somehow do something that will help somewhere? There are ideas in this book, but there are lots of other ideas that will come out of the creative conversations if you activate young people. And as you said, they come up with the most incredible mm. uh, questions and answers that have eluded us because we're so conditioned into thinking that the world around us way. is the mm. only way we can be. Mm. But it isn't the only way we can be. And mm. they can help us discover new ways of living in harmony with nature. I'm sure of it. Well, Christopher Lloyd, uh, your, boon, your books are a boon to our children, Thank to you. say the very least. Thank you for sharing your mind with us and with our kids. What is next on the cards for you? I know it's awful to ask an author this, but well, I do it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> that is fine. No problem. Well, I'm really enjoying the opportunity after COVID to get back on the road and to be able to come to places like wonderful South Africa and Franchuk and, and here in Johannesburg. Um, and so I'm looking forward to doing more touring. Um, I'm also always on the lookout for new projects. So I have um, some projects for books in the United States um, to try and tell the history of that, those places in a way that will, I hope, unify people. Uh, and um, the history of the United States is a very difficult and dark history. And um, there are a lot of people whose histories have been either ignored or, or removed, particularly the Native American people. Mm, mm. And I want to do a series of books that restore those people's um, traditions and uh, into the narrative of the United States. But but not without, without ignoring anybody else. Mm. And history, I think, can do a wonderful job of healing divisions in the present if it's done in such a way that 
everybody can recognize their history, but they can't ignore anybody else's. Now, maybe the same thing could be done in histories of South Africa, South Africa perhaps. 100%. And if we can do that, I think a lot of publishers are scared of trying to tell these difficult stories. But if they're done in the right way, in mm. a way that is genuinely inclusive um, and doesn't omit anything um, that's difficult, because actually children are very good at processing you mm. know, difficult. If you look at a traditional children's fairy tale, you know, they're pretty... They're pretty grim, aren't they? They're pretty they're violent. Pretty dark, they're pretty dark, yeah. Uh, and, and, and so actually the capacity of a child to be able to process difficult things should not be underestimated. It's just we need to do it in a way that's inclusive. Um, so that's one project, and uh, I'm hoping to do um, even discussing a little project to do something here in South Africa. Actually, I, I, I don't know whether that will come to be, but every time I go somewhere, I always meet people, and we always start thinking about uh, you know things that we could do. Um, so it would be lovely. But I think the theme of activating young people to try and demonstrate to the adults of this world of how they can be more closely aligned with nature is something I, I feel that we've started off here with Iptap to us and Humanimal, and I'd like to keep pursuing that in whatever ways I can. Well, Chris, hopefully in a few years we uh, can be sitting around a similar table chatting about one of those projects, that would if be great. not both, but that would one. Be wonderful. Um, it's been such a pleasure to have you on The Great Equalizer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Charlene. And Thanks, thank you for Chris. your amazing podcast.